0: I sat here and i was like what did i do all of this for like why did i leave my parents behind and abandon like my entire family um my roots just to come to a place where i can't do what i want to do like is this is this some sort of like a cruel joke Mm -hmm. when we're immigrants we don't just we don't just like leave our entire livelihoods behind and a sense of our identity behind or our culture what is a canadian film like what does it mean to be canadian we're all immigrants mm-hmm. right is it realistic to assume that we're not going to want to tackle themes from our homeland there's no beauty to be found in feeling like a victim like right. and as much as people sometimes like to paint me as one? Absolutely not. I think that all of my life experiences have made me into a a very well-rounded and strong person, and the reason I'm able to do what I am today and the reason I tell the stories that I like to tell today are because of those experiences. I don't want to wallow around in misery and be like, oh, look at what happened to me. Like, please give me opportunities. You know, I, I, I won't do that. How you guys
1: doing? My name is Travel Simpson, uh, here with another great episode of Unlinear, where we track the Unlinear journey of our very special guests. This week, I have the humble pleasure, I mean, to be sitting with a filmmaker and producer uh, of Pakistani origin, but now residing in Canada. Uh, so the Pakistani filmmaker and producer, Shahrazad Mia. thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for today.
1: I'm very excited. So I was, I was telling this story. I used to run a, or I was in operations for a, um, a charity called Land We Love. And Land We Love's entire model was to help assist the children of Jamaica. The way we kind of got through is one of our initial acts is we partnered with the Make-A-Wish Foundation to bring a young Canadian girl uh, who was ill to Jamaica it was one of her wishes and goals but because of that one Canadian component we then got huge amounts of funding ran two years worth of scholarships exclusively for kids in Jamaica. so it's always interesting because we talk about this sort of this sort of duality that exists um, from our upbringing. I have the benefit of being born here. My parents though are very clearly immigrants and and I would say that I grew up with, I'll put it to you this way. I grew up wishing I was an immigrant. That's how much they made the immigrant journey feel like this special component of my family. Uh, I have the benefit of your story, but just for the benefit of the audience, you are an immigrant to this country. Tell me, where, where were your early years spent? What was uh, what was your childhood like?
0: Well, this is a loaded question. It's going to take me some time to answer. That's but right. um, I, uh, I was born in Pakistan, in Karachi. Uh, I was actually... Um, orphaned in in a way, or maybe given up. By my birth parents and was adopted when I was actually quite young by Pakistani parents, like from Pakistan. Um, when I was three months old, this is actually pretty uncommon, especially for that time, because adoption isn't quite looked upon with you know gleaming eyes in Pakistan. There's no legal precedent as as there is in Canada for adopting children in Pakistan. So aside from like you know the the legal aspect of it, there's also a lot of like religious and like cultural reasons why why people frown upon it. But uh, shortly after that, you know I. I Left Pakistan when I was two to accompany my father um, and, of course, my mother to Nepal because he was in the foreign service. And from Nepal, I, I lived there for a few years. I went to Bahrain. And then from Bahrain, I went to Brazil. And then it was in Brazil when um, my dad finally retired. And we tried to come back, actually, and settle in Canada, uh, in Vancouver, uh, when I was maybe like 11, 12. But because my parents at the time, and, and they're much older, you know, they're 80, they're 81 now and I'm in my mid-30s. Um, they were just too old and the government wouldn't give them citizenship. So we ended up going back to uh, Pakistan, which is where I spent, I would say, the most amount of time growing up as an adolescent. Um, and that's where I kind of started to dabble in the arts. I started out in theater and then I started working in commercials. There was no film industry at the time in Pakistan. So it was very much just like me and a bunch of my friends who are also now doing Really well. Some of them have films in Khan and stuff. We were trying to kind of revive Pakistani cinema, and I realized that a, it was just not possible to do that from from Pakistan, just mm-hmm. because there was there was no um, there were no building blocks there. There was nothing. There was not even a single film school, and also b, being a woman, it was just so difficult because when I was working in the ad agency, I had men coming up to me and saying, "Well, I'm not going to take orders from a woman." So. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to migrate to Canada. I, I came by myself. I, I came to study at first. I was I thought that I would just come to Canada, amass a bunch of knowledge and figure out, you know, how to do things properly and then come back to Pakistan. But, uh, I mean, after coming to Canada, I I also met my life partner who's now, you know, he's my husband. We were dating at the time. And um, there were just so many benefits to being a, a woman here who wanted to be in the arts that I ended up staying here. And now... Now that I'm doing well, you know, my, my whole family is still back in Pakistan. What I try to do is I try to work on a lot of Pakistani themed productions that you know shoot either in Canada or in Pakistan it's just find ways to try and bring stories from Pakistan to yeah. the forefront. Yeah. Just because, you know, one of the things I like to say is, and this kind of touches on what you were saying earlier about being an immigrant, is that when we're immigrants, we don't just we don't just like leave our entire livelihoods behind yeah. and a sense of our identity behind or our culture. Yeah, we we bring those parts of ourselves with us to our new homeland, and they're never going to be eradicated. So mm-hmm. there's no way in hell that someone's going to approach me and say, "Well, now you have to make only Canadian films." Like that's not possible. Mm-hmm. And I think part of being Canadian is to embrace the fact that we come from different places and mm-hmm. that we have backstories um, or that we have countries that we want to revisit and kind of explore different uh, stories through.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I am. And that's where I'm at now.
1: So many interesting things. One thing I want to jump to, what was the biggest culture shock going to Brazil or after leaving Brazil, coming back to Pakistan? Because obviously you're born there, but you only, you're there until two. Yeah. And then you leave. So your formative years are kind of steeped. Yes, culturally similar, but it's not, it's not yet home. And then Brazil, I mean, look, from my own ignorance, I don't think Brazil is going to be much like Pakistan.
0: Oh, absolutely not. So
1: I think being there as a young girl, if, if I'm remembering the age correctly, because yeah. you're about 11.
0: I was nine when I got to Brazil, I think.
1: You're nine when you get to Brazil. And by the time you get back to Pakistan, what I'm age like are you? Like
0: 11, 12.
1: So these are, these are the money. Years. I mean, for me, when I think about yeah. being 9, 12, and I, you know, I'm, grown, I'm 32, there's stuff in my personality I can track to when I was nine years old. Yeah. What what was the bigger culture shock? What was the thing that kind of made you take a breath and think, whoa, we're talking language, we're talking people. But what was it like being in Brazil at night?
0: Well, I went from Bahrain, which was, I mean— when I initially went to school in Bahrain, my parents first sent me to an Islamic school where the teacher hit me on the hand with a ruler because I thought the son was God because that's what I was told in Nepal. My parents have always been very liberal and they haven't like tried to impose any kind of, um, you know, thoughts or, or ideologies on me. They mm-hmm. let me kind of just discover things on my own. And then when I went to Brazil, of course it was, it was wildly different. I remember mm-hmm. going to school in like these, like really short shorts. Okay. Um... As a nine-year-old, that okay. were so short that when I went on vacation to the states and saw my cousin, uh, she asked my mother why I was wearing underwear. Like, <laughs> and I had to explain to her that no, this is like the school uniform. Like, they're just really short shorts. Um, and a lot of the girls would, you know, have boyfriends at the age of 10 and they were already having sex. And it was so weird to me. I don't even think I understood the concept of sex back then. Okay. But because none of this was kind of addressed in our household or even taught at any of the schools that yeah. I went to, or maybe there was just gaps, you know, whenever I attended school, maybe I missed, you know, reproductive chapters or yep. something. I'm not sure. Um, it was it was very foreign to me. I, I felt like I didn't fit in. I was bullied a lot in Brazil for being so different. There weren't any brown kids to my knowledge um, that were at the school that I was in in Brazil, and believe it or not, Brazil was a very racist country. Like it, it, it was, and it was all based on your skin color. So the whiter you were, mm-hmm. the higher of a status you had.
1: Which is funny because you know that Brazil has the second highest population of Nubian-looking blacks in the world. I think outside of Nigeria. So this sort of colorist system—it's it, you know people talk about racism, but they talk about. Look, if you have a small population, like, for example, blacks in the United States make up 13% of the population. Yeah. Here in Canada, I think it's a tenth of that, right? It's, just, it's not you're the same. But you're kind of seeing culture clash on a massive scale. There's people are there everywhere. Absolutely. Are you aware of how these cultural differences are eventually going to bear themselves out in your work? Because when I hear you talk, I hear a strong sense of cultural identity, but I think it's because you know that culture is always under attack, which I feel is because you had... This young life hopping from culture to culture, seeing that, no, the core, the soul of a people is what you got to carry because you got to be Pakistani in three different parts of the world before you're 11 yeah. years old. Are you aware of that at that time as a child? Because I'm thinking you have these older parents. Maybe they're giving you wisdom. Like who's helping you navigate all this?
0: To be honest, nobody helped me navigate any of it. I um, kind of floundered around and I think that moving, in hindsight now, yeah. you know, moving around was extremely difficult. I felt like the moment I formed any kind of bond or attachment to any type of place or yeah. uh, or other people and spe- specifically friends, I was torn away from that. And oh. I think that, you know, being adopted, there was probably some sort of, I mean, not conscious Trauma about ha- being snatched away from like an environment that you were familiar with, but definitely like subconscious. Yeah. And it only kind of like compounded that. Um, and coming back to your early question, you know, when I did go back from Brazil to Pakistan, it was a massive culture shock. You know, I was a very a loving child. I was very energetic and exuberant. Things like you know hugging a male relative was kind of like, whoa, what is yeah. she doing? When I got back to Pakistan, so I was also bullied there a lot. Yeah. Uh, people would. I mean, I was, by the time I was 13, people would call me like a slut, even though I had never had like a boyfriend Whoa. just because I had so many, like, I was just friendly with guys. Like yep. the culture was so different. Um, but, you know, again, with respect to navigating all of this, hmm. in in Pakistani culture, and I and I have to stress that my parents, I love them so much. They did the best that they could do for me considering their own circumstances. And, you know, my dad... Uh, For example, like he was like nine years old or something like that during the partition of India. And that not many people know is um, essentially what it was. was That was when the British decided that they were no longer going to colonize India and Mm -hmm. they were going to hand it back to the people. Mm -hmm. And it was like this extremely violent and brutal partition of India into like what what became Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And it was only like 70 something years ago. Um, And I think something like two to three million people died like during this partition because of like how hastily the lines were drawn and how quickly, think of Afghanistan and how like Biden pulled out of yep. Afghanistan and how it's like a disaster yep. now, purely yep. because of the way they pulled out. Yep. So similarly, the way that the British pulled out like led to like mass riots, killings, murders, rapes, like they, people would literally grab babies and like pull their legs apart and like kill them at that time. And my dad, he was nine at the time migrating from the Indian part to the Pakistani part. And I try to think of like the horrors that he had to go through. Yeah. So I, I don't want to, Blame them for you know not maybe being at more present or sure. not more involved in sure. my upbringing, but you know he his father died when he was like very young a teenager, and then he was the oldest, so he had to support his entire family, his mother, who was illiterate and couldn't even read, and all of his brothers and sisters, like five of them yeah so when you grow up with parents who come from who've never had a chance to like really explore their true identity or yep. come to terms with their past or like try and like maybe move past their own traumatic upbringings. Like it's difficult for me to go back and say, well, you know, my parents do a really good job, but I did feel very, you know, and I, I realize this now because I didn't know anything different. It's not mm-hmm. like I had people whose house I was staying in and, and I could compare and say, oh, well, my friend over there, like her parents are like so involved in her upbringing. And they tell her like, you know, I'm, how are you feeling f- because of this transition? Mm-hmm. And is this difficult for you? I didn't have that. So I just thought it was normal. But also Pakistani families, they're just like that. People don't talk about things. Um, people don't talk about some very serious things. People don't talk about like you know, domestic abuse, they don't talk about divorce, they don't talk about sexual abuse, they don't even talk about like pedophilia, people are just, they just kind of bury it under the rug because mm-hmm. they don't want to, they don't have the capacity to talk about these things because it's never kind of been in our culture, but also it can be seen uh, as something like that is disrespectful. And, you know, because we're a very community-based um, culture,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, we're, what I, which is technically, we're, we're a collectivist culture where we like to uh, and this is this is happens a lot in Asian cultures where we like to. Um, it's not about the individual and what's best for the person; it's about what's good for the community, and that's why. Uh- our culture has progressed and our peoples have progressed so much. So mm-hmm. I think of it as I'm trying to think of a way to like give you an example, like joint family homes, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. States, it's like, you get married, you move out, you move into your own home. Yep. Whereas even in Canada, you'll see Indian families living in groups of 10 yep. in a house. Yep. It's because everybody wants to band together to pool in their resources. And then as soon as let's say they pay off one house, They'll go buy another house yep. and help each other. And it's great in some situations, specifically something like that. You know, like my parents paid for my education. Yep. It's great in those situations. But then the situations where it doesn't quite work out is like when your parents want to get involved in who you marry. Yep. Because it kind of becomes an entire family matter. Right. So it's, it's complex. And, um, you know, to, to in a roundabout way answer, answer your question about what was it like? I was very much trying to figure it all out on my own. And I don't think I did until recently.
1: Whoa. So many things there to unpack. Like there's, so one, there's this commentary that we have of introducing, but also creating the new Pakistani identity. Yeah. Because I hear this duality of balance of traditional presentations, traditional ideas on how to operate the Pakistani family. I understand where that is going to have voice and cause, but I also know from hearing you speak that there is a, it's not mo, It's not modernist. It's, It's. It's. I don't wanna say it's like, there's a more nuanced view of what it is to be Pakistani. Absolutely. For example, we talk about the benefit of, there's something in the Pakistani ideal in the, in, in, in the Asian family ideal that says, look, we're gonna make decisions that are economically smart. Yeah. And it is not an infringement on your identity. I think of other cultures, you know, a kid hits a certain age, they have to leave because without that, they have no freedom. For whatever reason, that's something that has been unlocked. Where, a, like, when I talk to my friends, the, the, you know, of uh, 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 varying backgrounds, one thing I notice is that in those families where, hey, I'm staying at home and we're built, me making a smart economic decision is not infringing on my individuality. I'm still an individual, I'm still who I wanna be. But there still seems to be this sort of regimented discipline in these cultures. So, my question is how? How do you maintain individuality? when so much of your cultural identity is kind of based on a preset structure?
0: I mean, I wish I had the answer to this. And and for the most part, I want to say you can't really do that Mm. unless your family is maybe a little bit more liberal and allows you to explore those elements of your personality. And to give you an example, you know, the classic, I mean, this is why there were no film schools or anything like artists. There was like one art school mm-hmm. in, in my city growing mm-hmm. up. Um, and it's because historically, you know, over decades and centuries of, of going through colonial rule and starving to death half the time, like somewhere along the lines, like we believe, cause I want to, I want to stress that like in the 1700s, like art during the Mughal era was like flourishing. Like mm-hmm. we, we were very much, much an artistic and emotional people. So, mm-hmm. You know, now it's the complete opposite. And I really, I hate to keep, you know, throwing colonialism under the bus, but really like, fuck them. <laughs> you know, they they came in and they, they took something like, I think trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. They they literally, if you, there were some historians that went back and calculated the amount of money that the British stole from, from India and the subcontinent. It was something like $1.45 trillion. Yep. And there was a time when they starved people to death in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And I think something like 3 million people died. So what I'm trying to get at is that somewhere along the way, Uh, survival became our only main instinct Mm -hmm. because of the circumstances that we were in over the last several centuries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then that translated into a way of being that meant that the only careers that were... Viable or that were acceptable were careers that were going to make you a lot of money, respectable mm-hmm. careers, like doctors, lawyers, engineers. And that's like the classic thing that everybody pushes you to be when you're in Pakistan.
1: And you think that's a subset of colonialism in terms of how it impacted the identity? I think that
0: that's like a rudimentary way of maybe my explaining it. Yep. But I think that it plays a major part because, you know, when I look back and, and I've studied this a lot, I, I, I see us as emotional people. Okay. I see us as people who did value the arts and I just, somewhere along the lines, that changed. And because the British ruled over us for how many centuries, like yeah. I... And so much change for the worse during that time and economically, like politically, but also like culturally um, and socially. I just feel like that played a huge role in a lot of this because when you're surviving, like, and if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of the needs, like, you're not going to be concerned about the arts when you can't even like, you know, feed yourself, right?
1: That's true. I I don't disagree. I still think there's something unique about Pakistan. I only say this, which I'm sure you agree with. I only say this because, you know. Uh, earlier this year, I watched this Netflix documentary series called "The Romantics," which essentially was talking about sort of this. I mean, I hate to say it this way, but it was sort of this nepotism-based rise of Indian filmmaking that all stemmed from. Like, it's like that. It's also
0: kind of like that in Pakistan, okay. in some ways, you know. And and I think the point that I was trying to get, and the reason I keep rambling is because there's so much to try and like give context to yep. um, before giving a straight answer. Yep. But the you know the issue is that. The only people who really are making movies right now are people in Pakistan yeah. that are a doing well, but also like that are able to be on screens are people who come from liberal families. Yep. Because the arts is just—I mean, if you look at like I would say eighty percent of the population like frowns upon the arts in Pakistan; they consider it un-Islamic and like anti-Muslim.
1: But do they consume them?
0: Not many. Okay. Yeah, not many. I would say that like the the majority of the population isn't going to go and watch a movie that I
1: make on. on really. Yeah. The, so, and I'll let you finish your answer. But is is, the, is there is the sub crusade of your work to give, sort of a quiet resistance based voice to the liberal Pakistan waiting to be heard?
0: I think so. I mean, I'm not quite sure. Mm-hmm. I, you know, for me, cinema has always been about learning something about myself mm-hmm. and learning something about the world around me, and mm-hmm. I and I feel that. You know, especially growing up in Pakistan when I was like, let's say I was like 11 or 12 when mm-hmm. I was growing up. I, I came right during like when there was right after like this military coup happened. Uh, in fact, I was vacationing there like when it happened mm-hmm. and this dictator took over and it was a whole thing. And that's why my dad had to like leave his job because the guy called up my dad one day and was the, the president who took over mm-hmm. was like, I want my brother-in-law to be um the next ambassador. My dad's like, screw you. Like I've been working towards this as like an honest human being for the last Thirty plus something mm. years, like I'm not going to retire. And, and the and the president essentially was like, okay, well, I'm going to charge you with like fraud and embezzlement and like kick you like out of your position. But that's a whole that's a whole other story. That but you know anybody that works in the film industry in Pakistan for the most part is coming from a, a higher economic you know social class yeah. and social class yeah. and from a liberal family. Um, and I think that you know I would love for yeah. a people from let's say like you know the lower socioeconomic communities to yeah. be able to tell their stories because those are the ones that are like so important yep. but also to do it in a way that isn't exploitative where rich people are trying to tell their stories yep. but then also I don't even know if people from those communities would even want to go to the cinema to watch stories about themselves so it's it's complicated because you've got like religion on one hand mm-hmm. you've got culture on the other you've got money on the other hand And it's all kind of, it's it's in, like, this weird mixed stewing pot full of, like, conflicting ideals. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, And I want to say, like, I have an answer for it, but I I don't. I'm still trying to figure it out.
1: I mean, I think of, like, you know, grassroots, usually, usually, you just need to keep your grassroots strong enough so that they can capitalize on when you get a major victory. Rare is the total victory that came from grassroots all the way up. There's always, you want to think politically. You know, you have the rebellion, the resistance, but there's always that senator that you got to think. Now we gotta, we gotta go with these guys. Um, you know, the people t- the people were mad, but the guys took out Caesar were the Senate, right? This this is this is the concept. So I, I I can appreciate what you're. I can appreciate the the Everest nature of the mountain to climb. Distilling it down to a single thought, the revolution that's going to happen in Pakistani film. Do you think it'll come from inside or do you think it'll come from an export who comes home? Even well, if it's only to visit with a film or because you know what I mean? You could visit, you could do something for the 20% or for the elites, but it could leave that seed that, that then changes the nation or will it be somebody from the inside? I think that's America? what's
0: going to happen. I think that, you know, there's been films like Joyland, which mm-hmm. was Saim uh, Sadik's first feature
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, nominated for uh, the Academy Awards. Historic, the only uh, Pakistani film to maybe ever be nominated. I may be wrong about this. Uh, and it was at Khan as well. And now another Canadian Pakistani film, In Flames, that was also at Cannes mm-hmm. um, and is still doing its rounds. It was just at TIFF. Again, you know, these are people who are kind of my contemporaries in the sense that, like, we come from similar backgrounds. Mm-hmm. We moved around the same circles. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, you know, these films are going to do, are going to set the rest of Pakistani cinema towards the path of being recognized on not just an international level, maybe also locally, mm-hmm. and that will open up the pathway towards local Pakistani filmers, Pakistani filmmakers making their own stories. And I had a conversation with this about this um, with someone who is like pure Pakistani, like doesn't have foreign nationality. Like to, to give you an example, like Syme is also a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. the one who did Joyland. Yep, um, the director of In Flames is a Canadian citizen, so they were pulling in funding from these foreign. Uh, countries like from the U.S. They yep. were getting funding to make a go make a film in Pakistan. From Canada, they were getting funding because there's no national funds in can in Pakistan for cinema. Right. Right. But I think that you know this will maybe open up doors to actual Pakistani filmmakers yep. who don't have second or third nationalities yep. and aren't able to tap into that that source yep. to be able to eventually make their own stories. And yep. that is what I hope um, because sometimes you know I work with a lot of even my last film, Concrete Valley. Mm-hmm. Director was um, like. French Canadian, like French from France. But what we did was we spent like almost two years talking to Syrian immigrants in the Thorncliffe Park region about their life, their experiences, Mm -hmm. and then the director crafted a story based around their real lives and then cast those real immigrants to play themselves or different versions of themselves in the film. Mm -hmm. And after having come out of that process, it's difficult for me to look at um, Pakistani cinema, at least the cinema that is, uh, first of all, it's very much in its infancy stages, but it's difficult for me to look at a film without thinking, like, I really want these communities that we're trying to represent to have agency in their own narratives rather mm-hmm. than a person who has absolutely no idea what it feels like mm-hmm. to be, you know, let's say, a woman growing up in, mm-hmm. in Karachi from a lower economic status to try and tell their story. It mm-hmm. just feels in, it it, there's something that that needs to shift, and mm-hmm. I think that the fact that stories are being put out there is is just fantastic yep. to begin, because you have to start somewhere. We're yep. not going to be perfect from you know, the first moment going onwards. But um, that's what I really hope for. I hope that people there get to actually tell some of their own stories. Um, and That somewhere along the way, our cinema will ev- evolve in a way that there's room for the types of stories that expats want to tell, but also yep. room for the types of stories that actual citizens who live there on a day-to-day basis want to tell.
1: I think there's this, like, when, when I'm hearing you talk about it in its infancy and in, in, in culture, obviously... I I had a cup of coffee in the director's chair once. Thought I had something to say, clearly didn't. But when I think about film, I always thought when I was looking into it, the balance culturally of a guy like Spike Lee existing in the same time as a John Singleton, existing in the same time as a F. Gary Gray. So F. Gary Gray does Set It Off, which is like the blockbuster thing. John Singleton does Boys in the Hood, which is like, like the how do i say this in a way (laughs) it's like the digestible oh my gosh i can't believe they're doing that to each other in the ghettos thing and then you probably had spike lee doing these 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 different types of film. i'm curious if you see filmmaking in those three quadrants is there one that you're doing for cultural identity is there one you're doing that has to be of exclusive monetary success because at the end of the day yes the, the the sub audience of any film or any piece of art is unique but it still probably has to have a master appeal is that something that you consider that you see your contemporaries considering when Um, putting together their work
0: you know i i think to be honest like as well as concrete valley did it was at tiff and it was the only indie canadian film and Mm -hmm. when i say indie i mean like low budget canadian film at berlin last year the other two films had like massive budgets it was blackberry and just, just to
1: track just to track uh indie budget just so people understand how hard filmmaking is what is a small budget to you
0: we had, like, $250,000.
1: quarter of a million dollars, small budget.
0: Yeah, that it was, like, impossible making that movie, mm-hmm. and there were only eight of us um, on the crew, for the most part, trying to make it work. Whereas, like, take Infinity Pool and BlackBerry, you're looking in, like, the multi-millions. Multi-millions, yeah. Um, so just want to reiterate that, like, that was crazy to me, that, like, here was my little film yep. at Berlin with, like, these two other massive films with so much money. But, um Oh, I'm forgetting the initial question. Oh, I'm gonna have to like circle back. I got distracted.
1: Just, just a sense of, just a sense of. Do you still feel milk? Do you see the success of filmmaking happening yes. in those three quadrants? Is there a mass audience? So
0: you know, I think. I mean, as as well as that did. Like, I think I'm still a terrible producer because <laughs> I like to. I like to pick stories that have meaning and that can impact future generations. Yeah. You know, to. I don't know, learn something about themselves or be different. And, and, and I say that because like, that's why I'm the person that I am today. You know, I didn't have that many people kind of like guiding me through life. Like, you know, you, you mentioned before the question that you asked and I learned about myself and what I wanted to do with my life through cinema. And and that's why those are the types of stories that I want to tell. And those types of stories often don't make money. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's really, it's really quite difficult. And, you know, Will I eventually, what people call, sell their soul and and do... um, Yeah, like
1: you get the Marvel call. Yeah, exactly. That's the running thing. And I've
0: gotten the Canadian version of the Marvel call. I can't discuss, like, for, you know... For reasons. For for privacy reasons. But I've I've gotten that call where people have tried to put me on, like, these huge, you know, projects. Let's call them projects. Where I'm just like, do I really want to do that with my life? Did I really, you know, go through all of this to just want to cash in on something that I don't care about and spend so much time on. I'm just not that type of person, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately for my bank account, I'm not that type of person. So I don't know, maybe maybe I'll get to a point where I'm just so frustrated, uh, you know, maybe financially that I might say, okay, what? Well, you know what, I will. But I really don't want to do that um, because I think that like my films are just, the films that I like to, to work on are beyond just like, oh, here's a film that did well at the box office. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's a film that has touched me. And so far, the two films or you know, well, the one feature and like the many, many different shorts that I've worked on, mm-hmm. like it is so, so rewarding to meet people and have people email me and DM me on Instagram and say, you know what, your film changed my life. Mm-hmm. I have now sought therapy. You know, a short that, and I don't like to publicize this, but a very personal short film that I directed um, and wrote a couple of years ago in 2021, which Mm -hmm. was in the festival route in 2022, tackled the subject of like sexual assault within South Asian communities. And apparently it was one of like the first films to kind of do so, Mm -hmm. at least maybe in Canada. Mm -hmm. And my casting call went viral. And I had people from, um, and this was my first film, mind you. I was just kind of exploring, trying to tackle subject matters like within my community. And I'm still trying to figure out if I want to keep doing that. But I got people emailing me from like New Zealand saying I will hop on a plane and fly to you just to be a part of this movie because this is my story and you know I feel like being a part of this film is going to help me come to terms with what happened to me and when I finished the film I would say that you know one third of the the participants that took part in the movie like they all came to me one by one and said well this happened to me or like you know my Quran teacher used to molest me as a kid or like my uncle used to do this to me or like my father-in-law and and you know I never have never told anyone except for you, and thank you for letting me be a part of this movie. And now I'm seeking therapy. Now I've cut off my toxic parents, like, or I have finally told my dad that this person did this to me. And for me, that was I think that there's nothing in life, like no amount of money could could possibly make me feel the way that hearing that yeah. could that I've impacted people's lives in in such a way.
1: Yeah, I think you know we were talking about the work. We're talking about the process. We we have this sort of cultural clash uh, that exists as a young girl where you kind of exist in Brazil, where they're bullying you for being not quite liberal enough. And then they're giving you a hard time in Pakistan for being, being a bit too liberal. too liberal. And then from that, you identify this new Pakistani identity because... Now, as films come out, as we talk to others, you're probably seeing that there is this big community, but you didn't have the benefit of knowing that that existed when you were younger. You stood on an island. How long? And you said that you are only recently coming in to, to that. So you're back in Pakistan at 11. You never asked a woman her age. Well, you, you, I mean, you said it yourself. You, you're in your head. It's 20 years. It's 20 years. How long did you spend on that cultural island holding on to this view of not just your country, but of your identity in your country by yourself?
0: I think that during my time in Pakistan, I was just so focused on just surviving the day-to-day that I didn't have time to think. Um, This was shortly after I got there, 9-11 happened. Okay. And then Pakistan saw over the next several years while I was there, we saw like the worst amounts of domestic terrorism and just like violence that has been around since then. Like it's, I don't think it's ever been bad since then. So
1: let's take a pause because I don't know that anybody's ever explored this. Yeah. There is, after 9-11, domestically, I saw a lot of my uh, immigrant friends experience the left view of the fallout from that. Yeah. There is a fear of, so you're never supposed to talk religion. So I'm, 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 I grew up a non-denominational Christian, uh, but I went to a Pentecostal church. It's very important I make that distinction. I went to a church that was Pentecostal, but my family was very non-denominational. When I went to college, one of the first courses I took was Christianity in context, because I wanted to read other things. So I read the Quran and so it, it, it put me in a perspective to kind of understand the unmeasured fear of what was at the time the Western world against what they thought was a new enemy. Yeah. What I am ignorant to, and what I think the audience is ignorant to is how those events and the rumors of those events radicalize the homeland, which would be yours in Pakistan. Because there's some who then say, look how they're doing us out there. That's why we gotta go like this. And then there's some who are probably saying, well, like, I don't know if we should take it there or, or maybe we should. What is that like at home? I know what it was like here in Canada, small percentages, small numbers, but you're talking about very real life consequences in Pakistan. What uh, Tell about that.
0: So I think, I mean, it's complex in the sense that, you know, the US would, like partnered with Pakistan for the lack of a better word. Mm. I'm not going to get into that because there's there's a whole, and I I come from a very political family. Okay. Okay. So (laughs) my, um, my uncle was, at one point I had a distant uncle that was the president of the country. At another point, my uncle was the finance minister. Like, so, I think that maybe in many ways, like, I felt this threat more than others just okay. because, like, one of my other uncles got blown up in a terrorist blast, like, on live TV.
1: Yeah, essentially um, a political, assa- which is what these things were at that time, a political assassination.
0: Mostly, exactly. And, um... For this, and you know, just to kind of like briefly touch on what you were saying. The, the main issue in Pakistan was that because the U.S. was trying to find Osama bin Laden, yeah. right, which is a whole other thing I'm not going to get into. Yeah. Um, they were targeting certain areas of northern and different parts of Pakistan, where they were like bombing and droning entire communities, villages, when men, women, children would die. A lot of innocent people would die. And then the blowback I would say that we mostly received was people from these communities coming back to try and target us like in the major cities um, for taking part in something that was like killing all of their people. So a lot of the time it was like political resistance to try and be like, why are you fucking killing us? Like we haven't done anything. Or maybe sometimes, you know, they were targeting areas where there were like, you know, radicalized terrorists and those guys were coming back to be like, okay, well, you know, you bomb us, we bomb you. So there was, you know, this was actually once I came back to, once I was in Canada, but at one point I think they killed something like 200 and something students at an army public school in Peshawar. They just went in, opened fire and killed all of them, all these kids dead. So... A lot of it was targeted towards like political figures, um, which is why, you know, a lot of, unfortunately, the people that I know were always kind of being tried to be assassinated. Like my uncle was kidnapped once as well. Another uncle of mine was kidnapped once another time. It's a whole thing. But the point that I'm trying to get at is that even though that I wasn't, let's say, a target, I remember being you know, just like in a marca's, which is the shopping area with like a couple of friends of mine. And then all of a sudden, like, I thought I hear fireworks, but actually it's just like a bunch of gunfire. And then two seconds later, like a bomb goes off and I'm just like, whoa, what's going on? So just, it's, it's moments. It's hard to explain because yeah, okay. These things were happening. Yes. Okay. Like a friend of mine was just like shot while she was at the courts, like trying to practice a case of hers, but you find ways to just like still coexist and have fun and like be a kid and you know or a teenager and i would still like sneak out to parties and like you know even go even in dancing. this
1: environment so even you, in this environment is it do you just get desensitized to it cuz i'm you're you're describing a war zone
0: I mean, I want to say, I don't want to say it was a war zone because, you know, the McDonald's was still running and like the streets were still clean, but occasionally a guy in a fucking pickup van would come in and, you know, here's the other thing. There were security checkpoints, I would say like every couple of kilometers on the road. Yeah, yeah. for this specific reason, because people from like the different Northern areas in Pakistan would come in in like yeah. a little van and they would have like a bomb, like strapped to the back of like their, or underneath their car. And like a bunch of guys with like guns in the back and they would like try and like uh, target military checkpoints or get into like a, or there was like a, there was a huge bomb blast at the Marriott, right? They wanted to like make a point. Like yeah. we don't like the fact that these foreigners are coming in and bombing our country. So I, you would somehow most of the time become like a casualty Uh, if you were nearby. So I don't want to say it was a war zone in the sense that, you know, shops were shuttered. The world just, we just went on, We went on with our business. And we just knew that like, there might be a possibility that, you know, someone's going to come in and like gun a couple of people down. Like the, I think the worst of it for me, which was most impactful was when things were at their worst, I was in school. And I remember the Taliban calling us at the school being like, you killed our kids. We're going to send you all home in coffins. And that was when I was like, okay, I'm in school. Um, I'm kind of afraid that someone's going to come in and gun us all down. And then so the school shut for three days, right? But then that was it, you know, they went in, they would raid like a couple of areas and then the government would be like, everything's cool now, everybody go back to school.
1: I think, there, I'll, and I'll, I'll explain why I mentioned Warzone. So I was a political science major in school. Uh, and this, this entire saga made famous by Steven Spielberg's film Munich. Operation Wrath of God took years, but they were at war. And I would have to imagine that you exist in a heightened sense of violence and danger because you know that this is not over until they get what they want. Where Operation Wrath of God, there was a there was a select list of all the people who were involved in the in the in the Munich terrorist attack. For yourself as a young child, it is until this. It was it until Osama bin Laden. Do you know what I mean? Like, was there that sense of this happens until they catch Osama bin Laden? This happens until they get what they want. Absolutely. It's this heightened sense of reality.
0: Absolutely, and I'll tell you something, and I'm not going to elaborate on it because I don't want someone to come and pick me up and uh, do what we've been hearing about in the news lately,
1: <laughs> oh God, <okay. laughs>
0: or you for that matter. But uh, the 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 city that they said that they found Osama bin Laden in is the city that my mom was born in. Everybody mm. knows everybody. Mm. Okay, uh, and when that happened, like the first thing we did was call up my my grandfather's, mm-hmm. like... It was Peshawar, wasn't it? Yeah, you... Peshawar. Peshawar. Yeah. Peshawar sorry. No, sorry, not Peshawar. It was Aftabad. It was okay. Uh And we were like, yo, did this happen? And I'm not going to... I'm not going to elaborate on that. that more. That. But I will say that, like, that was the turning point. After that, the U.S. kind of felt like, oh, well, we've, you know done what we needed to do. And the whole point that we were here bombing left, right and center is because we thought that like, we were trying to go after this guy and he's no longer, no longer around. So we don't really need to go after him. So, so when that did happen, like it started to get better. It started to get a lot better after that. And uh, unfortunately for me, I was so preoccupied with wanting to leave um, because I just, you know, I guess subconsciously I just didn't feel safe in my environment, but also in my own body, there was a lot of other types of violence, excuse me, that were, that was, you know, kind of happening in my life around that time as well. And, uh, but once I left, things started to get better. And now I'm just like, oh, darn. Like, I don't know if I left at a good time or not, but you know what? Life takes you on these weird paths and I feel like whatever I'm destined for, like that's that's what I'm meant to
1: do. Well, I would argue that it probably prepared you. I mean, the audience doesn't know this, but I'll give it to them. So you leave Pakistan at 21 to come to Canada to study. Yeah. You spend three years studying film. film. Uh, After studying film, you make a decision that you want to work in film. Unable to get work because you're a- You're not Canadian. You're not not Canadian. Uh, So you have to work on getting your PR, permanent residency. Am I correct about that? Mm -hmm. Which is a process. So you've left, you, you have this idea to leave, to go to Canada, to study film, to tell your stories. You want, essentially, I'm going to a place where they'll give me an opportunity to talk about where I come from. In the midst of doing that, This place that is supposed to be your land of opportunity won't give you a job. Tell me about those years.
0: Oh, they are...
1: Because those are the years you fought for if you think about it, right? When you leave Pakistan, when you have all these experiences as a young child and you go out there, you you essentially sacrificed everything you knew to earn the right to be jobless for four years.
0: This is a really difficult um, part of my life Mm. because you know, being the only child, I was the only child that my parents adopted. They're 81. They, um, did everything that they could for me. And I felt like I had come to a place thinking that my life was going to get better. And, you know, Canada really positions itself as a country for immigrants. And, you know, we love immigrants so much, but Mm -hmm. all they do want to do is, like, get you here and then you're all on your own. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they make it so difficult for you to get your PR or your citizenship. And, you know, at least for me in my field, um... In the film industry, it's impossible to get any work unless you have nationality because funding rules, I would say like 97% of funding or maybe even 98, to be honest, actually, let's just say 100% because I don't know of a single source of funding um, or at least at that time, like job opportunities for non-Canadians in the film industry because it's so closely linked to nationality. I'm not going to get into how complicated it is, but I sat here and I was like, what did I do all of this for? Like, why did I leave my parents behind and abandon like my entire family um, my roots just to come to a place where I can't do what I want to do? Like, is this, is this some sort of like a cruel joke? Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, although initially coming to Canada was great in the sense that I finally had space from the chaos that I was living in. And so the, for the first time in my life, everything felt still mm-hmm. and I could really kind of just learn who I was as a person. And, and that's how I developed, I would say, into the human that I am today. And, 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 you know, during that time I also met, My partner, Vincenzo, Mm. who um, that's a whole other story that I married a white man, but uh, he (laughs) he was so instrumental in kind of helping me come to terms with my past and Mm. uh, the experiences that I had and how Mm. to move. Because I'll be honest, like I have friends, cousins, like family members who are back home who lived through everything that I lived through. And they didn't have the opportunity to be able to separate themselves from the environment that was causing them mm-hmm. so much distress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And many of them, I mean, some of them just committed suicide. They're dead. Um, other of them, Others are just, they're addicted to like various types of drugs. And the rest are just miserable on antidepressants and leaving some sort of like a, a life in limbo. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time, at least I have to give this to Canada, that like I was able to kind of just like learn who I was, who I wanted to be. Um, and maybe that's what kind of gave me strength for like the, I would say five something years. Cause I graduated in 2013. I didn't get my PR until the end of 2017. So like almost five years mm-hmm. that I couldn't really do anything. Maybe that's what kind of gave me hope that it was like, okay, you know, at least I am able to fully realize who I am as a person and I don't think I would ever have had this opportunity had I stayed there Mm -hmm. and if I don't ever get to to follow this career path at least I'm married to a man that I love Mm -hmm. uh, because so many women that I know back home who are married to men who like cheat on them beat the shit out of them like rape them marital rape is so common there
1: that people don't talk about
0: um nobody talks about that and I just I think like that's kind of what What sustained me, Mm -hmm. and um, of course, like I have to credit Vincenzo a lot. Like he really was my rock during all of these times, and my parents also they believed in me, and thankfully I was able to see them at least once a year in in summer as they would come visit me. And it was it was a terrible time in my life, but you know nobody would even mentor me because of my lack of status as a Canadian. But out of that, now that I have it, I have to say that. Because of that experience, I started my own mentorship program Mm -hmm. specifically for South Asian immigrants Mm -hmm. and emerging filmmakers who have gone or are going through the same thing, Mm -hmm. just so they don't have to feel as alone as I did, uh, because I don't think that everyone would be as lucky as I was to have, you know, a stable economic environment Mm -hmm. where I didn't have to go start working at, I don't know, like a Starbucks or something Mm -hmm. to just to make ends meet.
1: The rules around funding for the arts in this country are steeped in nationalism, probably because they're so reliant on taxation dollars, and the government doesn't want to be seen to be supporting, quote unquote, non Canadians. Yeah, I find that a very rich assumption just because that's the entire film industry.
0: Yeah.
1: Hollywood ponies up a $400 million movie that's gonna shoot in Norway, nobody bats an eyelash but there's something about that grassroots level that they're like, no, it's for Canadians by Canadians, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Which is inherently not artistic.
0: No. Um, I have so much to say about
1: this. (laughs) (laughs) This is is the platform. Because I think that what's becoming clear when we talk about your experience, which I understand why we were talking in the beginning, you're more than a filmmaker and a producer. I think that... You're, you're, you're a true entity that's had causes placed on your heart and soul. And production and filmmaking is merely your current discipline at which to wage this, 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 this not war, but this, this stance. I don't want us to shy away from talking about that because we say there is no avenue, at least at the time, for Pakistani filmmakers to make Films in Pakistan, because of the cultural divide that exists, then we say the only avenue by which it could happen are people who leave with true cultural experience but are given the opportunity abroad to then come home and share film with with the people. This could be the beginnings of causes of change. So it's we can't then mildly acknowledge that in these safe havens of immigrants or immigration, the natural pitfalls that exist. I, look, politically, I always say this. If you're going to make something, you got to make it that it rides its way all the way through to its natural conclusion. And, you know, I know the nationalists are going to hate this. Patrice Bernier right now is sending me hate mail. I believe it, but, uh, but, um, why don't we talk about that? What would it take is it going to be a private corporation coming in and creating an opportunity? Because the solution can't be that immigrants to this country need to wait to get PR status to make film.
0: Unfortunately, that's the way that it is right now. And, you know, you, you're you right that a lot of the way that the film industry in Canada is subsidized is through the government. You know, Telefilm Canada, which is like the most, like the one of the biggest funding bodies. Yeah, number
1: one film Mafia Baby. Um, you still got my application. <laughs> here for me.
0: I mean, they their entire a lot of what they get is like through the like in terms of financial assistance through the government and then they determine which projects that they will support or not. And I have to say that like from ten years ago versus now, things have changed drastically in the sense that prior to this, I don't even think you were allowed to shoot films in like another language. Whereas Concrete Valley, the film that I just did, um was like I think like sixty percent in Arabic. Yep. Yep. So it's not that they're not making an effort, I, and yeah. I think that it's not something that can happen overnight. Yeah. But coming back to what you said about immigrant filmmakers and and wanting to make stories <clears throat> and films about uh, the communities that they come from and the countries that they come from, I understand in some point of view like what you know the the re, like the government funding. S- aspects uh, avenues over here in Canada are talking about in the sense that they don't want people coming here and abusing their funding system. So they have certain rules in place. And I agree with that to a point because there are Canadians who've been working and and toiling away here trying to, you know, get those same funds. So it would, so it would be disastrous in some sense, but at the other, at the other end of the spectrum, the solution that I think Mm. would probably be more viable is that instead of putting so many restrictions on how Canadians, like people who are eventually Canadian, are allowed to spend their money. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I was trying to um, get my next feature film, which is now shooting in January, okay. off the ground to shoot in Pakistan. But there are so many loopholes in the way that you're allowed to spend money outside of Canada. Yeah. So we were it was a fully Canadian team, like Canadian-Pakistani, the director was Canadian... We fulfilled all of our points criteria, which is, you know, all of your key creatives need to be Canadian. We were just going to fly everybody over and yeah. shoot over there. Yeah. Even our actor, like we were looking at like Pakistani Canadian actors mm-hmm. because there's such a large population of them here. Mm-hmm. But the problem was that the way that they allow you to spend money is kind of breaks it down so that you can't spend more than maybe like 19 or 17 percent of your entire production budget. Mm-hmm. Um in outside of Canada mm-hmm. and entire production budget sound, sounds like, oh, okay, well like we can figure out ways, but no, they, there's various steps along the way when, you, when you're when you trying to figure out the accounting mm-hmm. where they get you. So, you know, any fees that uh, that go towards, you know, let's say me or the director, even though they're Canadian, they don't count as part of that budget. So basically all of your labor, right, is, is not included, which effectively means that you can only really spend like maybe 10% outside of the country. Mm-hmm. The point that I'm trying to get at is that It's next to impossible, uh, and Pakistan isn't an official co-producing country. It has no co-productions with anybody. The only really real route to Mm -hmm. get around this is if Canada was to sign a co-production treaty with another country Mm -hmm. because then there are provisions to allow for non-Canadians to work on films that are shot in, you know, third countries. But the only way to really work is if Canada had a co-production with Pakistan, but they don't because Pakistan's such a poor country. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, you know, what is a Canadian film, like what does it mean to be Canadian? We're all immigrants, Mm -hmm. right? Is it realistic to assume that we're not going to want to tackle themes from our homeland, right? It's not because so many of us, like not a large majority of us have been here for like five, six, seven, eight generations, right? I think that like something needs to be changed in the sense that like whether it's to do with like the key creative requirement or to do with like the allocation of spend, because the films that are being shot, like let's say in Pakistan are getting into can like, they're doing so exceptionally well. Like clearly like we should be trying to cater to, and not just not exceptionally well here, but exceptionally well internationally, which is where the money comes in. Canada. I think somebody was telling me the other day that Canada, uh, only 2% of Canadians actually watch Canadian films. The rest of it is just international and U S films. So imagine, like, we're not gonna make money trying to sell films to like Canadians, right? Right, right. Canadian films to they don't want to watch our movies, right? Why do you think that
1: is, though? Because they watch our TV shows.
0: I think it's because like what it means to be Canadian is just so varied. Like, and Canadians come from so many different ethnocultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds, and we're not, I would say, like a unified whole. Where various different pockets of different communities yep. and each of those communities have different interests and tastes, which poses like a real problem so I really do empathize with like the funding bodies like it poses a problem how do you whereas in the states it's kind of like this is a you can you can think about what is an American film for the most part. Like Iranian film, you can think about what an Iranian yeah. film is. like Whereas Canada is literally just like a mishmash of many different people from many different countries who bring all of their own different nuances into the way they like to make movies. Yeah. So it's, it's a very, you either like really try to make it, you narrow it down and make it so specific that you have to integrate some Canadian elements to that or you just let us like go out and involve, go out into the world and involve like different countries Uh, Maybe like instead like hire Pakistani, you know, crew and actors and take them to Pakistan. What I'm trying to get at is that like there's there are better ways to do it without so many restrictions. And had it not been for those restrictions, if there were like you said, there was a private corporation that came in and gave us money. We don't even need that much money. I could make a like a stellar film in Pakistan just because the rate of exchange is so low in in Pakistan for like three hundred thousand dollars. That's all I need. And I guarantee you, like, if I, there's so much talent there, that film will do well. Yeah. It'll do well at the box office. It'll do well internationally. It's just because it's an untapped area. People haven't seen movies from that area. Right.
1: And the, but, and the population and the cultural identity from that area is still so pronounced. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's about, I mean, look, at the end of the day, most things that we're, we, we punted on this many years ago. I, I'll never forget when I was reading, uh, when I was studying political science and there was a distinction made between a healthy city and a feverish city, because the people said they want your city has no spoils. And I think it's Plato. He comes back and he said, if you city, if you want your city to have spoils, you want your city to become feverish. So we punted on capitalism a long time ago. We decided on this. Most things don't get done unless it makes a dollar. Most things don't get done unless a dollar can be made from it. It's the same thing I see right now in, in venture. There's a huge push to fund female entrepreneurs in venture space, right? So if it's a female led company, female CEOs, big money going there. It's on the heels though of data over the past five years showing it is a untapped, it's a trillion dollar untapped market because, you know, female females drive the retail market, female CEOs have a easier impact in understanding useful tools that should be designed for women. So they're making products that are easy to sell and scale. This is the concept, it's proving on the balance sheet. Now you have all these guys coming around saying, I, you know, I support women, I joined them and they're just really coming on a train that they know is gonna help their bottom line. I think it's the same thing in film. Yeah. Like for me, for many many years, uh, there was this desire to have varying roles for Black actors in Hollywood. I remember growing up and my parents would talk about that. I remember watching Alex Haley's Roots and seeing you know Lavar Verton from Reading Rainbow play Kuta Kente, and thinking, "Hey, wow, that's that's going to be great." And I'm not saying it's not great, but Ghost and Power still runs for 17 like the. the drug lord gangster narrative thing is still where most of our guys are going to get their money. No. So you kind of understand that there's this like one for them, one for one for us? Yeah. No. Maybe I don't know how that translates on the on the film side. But bringing yourself back to I think it's so funny that you called Vincenzo white because I've never met an Italian man who called himself white.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know what it is? I wouldn't call him white either, but I think the large majority of people here would just assume that he's white. Especially with like the recent shift in just like, you know, the social political landscape. Anybody that is European is just, they're white.
1: I don't know. It's always confusing. I remember one time I I, 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 remember it was, I think it was an Italian friend of mine. He goes, you know, I'm not like these other white guys, Trevell. I'm Italian. I, I opened my mind. I, I was Let's like, just be said? clear.
0: I think the same. <laughs> okay.
1: But what was that first job after 2018? You get your PR end of 2017 are going into 2018. Now, the reason why I'm tracking it is because Concrete Valley is 2020. When did you finish that?
0: When we finished in, oh, so here's the thing. I want to say, you know, since receiving my PR, let's say beginning of 2018, two of those years until 2023 were just eradicated by a pandemic. So really, I only had three years to catch up wow. to doing what, like, my colleagues in film school have been doing for the last, like, almost a decade. Better part of a decade, yeah. Okay. So, it, I mean, last year I worked seven days a week, like 95 hours a week. I'm- I'm now taking a break, but I was extremely burnt out. It's not healthy. So I want whoever is listening to this to understand that this, this is the position that you're putting people like us in, yeah. and we've already come from such difficult um, backgrounds, like and had so many challenges already. And we're not setting us up for success unless we come from, you know, a privileged life where we can afford to just, you know, not take on like a nine to five to try and make our, our lives work. But the first job I, so I produced a I executive produced a short, but I wouldn't call that my first like break. I think okay. my first real break was that I, I got this mentorship through women in film and television, WIFT um, with the, the SVP of Vice Media at the time. I, I, she might still be the SVP of Vice Media, Vanessa okay. Case. Okay. And I told her, look, like, this is what I've been struggling with. I've been trying so damn hard. I finally got my PR. What do I do? Yeah. And she kind of, like, broke it down for me. She explained to me the way the industry worked. You know, there was a time where I was sending out resumes and I would never get a call back. And the moment I anglicized my name to Shezzy Bertillo, Bertillo is my last, na- my husband's last yeah, name, right the amount of people who called me back was, like, insane. It's one thing to be... You know, a South Asian Muslim Canadian woman, but people don't quite understand what it's like to be a South Asian Muslim like woman who is also an immigrant. Like people do not view you the same. They ask for Canadian experience, but they refuse to give you Canadian experience. So this mentorship was pivotal. Um, And then that same year, I spoke with Antoine, the director of Concrete Valley, who was looking for a Pakistani producer because initially we wanted the film to be about Pakistanis. uh, And that's uh, when I got my talent to watch so it was almost like wow. within the next year, like I got the money from Telefilm to produce my first feature, which then went on to like TIFF Berlin and all over the world and is now in cinemas. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I had this mentorship that I was wrapping up the very same in 2021. I became. So all
1: this is happening. So you have, because I mean, this is like a NASCAR pit crew. You, you, 2018, you have to work. 2019, you work. You start the mentorship when though?
0: I believe I was selected for the mentorship in 2018 towards the end of it. And then it continued into 2019.
1: Okay. Yeah. And then because 2020 is a write-off. 2020 is a write-off for anybody.
0: 2020 was a write-off in the sense that I couldn't shoot the film because of COVID and the pandemic.
1: Okay. Um. But then by I, 2021, the building blocks are in place. 2021,
0: we shot the film. And okay. then 2022, it was done in in, in cinemas. Wow. Uh, sorry, in, in festivals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but in 2020 was literally just. I remember like redoing my kitchen cabinets because I was like, "What the hell am I doing? Like, I can't do anything. I, yeah. There's no work anywhere." Yeah. Um, I did line produce like some shorts and some yeah. um, like a feature, a three and a something million dollar feature. And this was only because like I had a PR, right? So now they could tax credit me, right? right? And get back like uh, I think it's something like 25% of their labor for whatever they paid me. So if they give me a hundred bucks. They, you know, get 25% back, like once they get their tax credits in. And that's yep. why most people wouldn't employ anybody at my level for something unless I had a PR because of the tax credit system and how that works. Or that's why I couldn't get telephone financing because they'll only give it to someone who is a permanent residence. I couldn't even do that. There was this uh, Canada Media Producers Association mentorship, mm. which I tried to apply for twice, even once while I was waiting for my PR. And they said, nope, sorry, you're not Canadian. We can't give it to you. And I mean, in the end, I ended up doing it more recently with Hawkeye Pictures, who um, produced Brother, which won like a record-breaking number of CSAs. And I was with them around that time. And and I was just looking back thinking like, man, you know, like, you know how helpful this would have been if I could have done this not in my goddamn 30s, yeah. like if I could have done that in my 20s. Yeah. And I just feel like because of all of this, I still feel this insane amount of pressure to work at an output which is just not sustainable neither physically nor financially nor mentally or emotionally and it's all because of the fucking system Mm. you know the system that like brings us here being like oh look at all these great things but like doesn't give us the opportunities to be able to like progress as fast as like let's say our colleagues Mm -hmm. and you know if i ever if i think about having kids like that's just going to be another thing that's going to slow me down i mean of course it'll be great in other ways but you're I'm, i'm seeing immigrants who come here who give up like these big milestones that they want to have want to go through in life like having children or having even a partner because they feel like these things that normal human beings should be able to go through and should be able to like you know experience now that we're living in a country which is supposed to be so free yeah, like we don't really get to experience those because we're given so many hurdles and setbacks compared to the average canadian yeah. that you know we have to give up all of these things in our life in order to like be remotely successful
1: am i and I, if it's a personal problem we'll cut it your time taken waiting for your PR status, then your time taken throughout COVID, and then the reality of your evolving career now, do you worry that the sum total of those events will encourage you to not have children?
0: I don't know. Um What I will say is that I have always wanted, and I remember you asking this earlier, or not asking this, but saying that I seem like more than just a producer and filmmaker. It seems like I have so many other aspects to me that I want to explore. I want to run my own orphanage in Pakistan. Uh, There isn't a day that goes by where I, I don't feel like, you know, I'm so profoundly lucky and that like this life was not meant for me I'll, I'll give you a statistics i think i read somewhere first of all there's like 4.5 million orphans in in pakistan oh. and there's only like maybe like 20 orphanages um and out of that maybe only like 2500 kids are like actually placed in adoption centers or orphanages so imagine like the other how many millions that are just out on the street but uh, at around age nine like they just don't have room anymore because uh, they want to keep kids when they're most vulnerable which is when they're younger and so they basically have to kick out most of the kids, a lot of these, like, publicly funded orphanages. Um, and then I think something like 96.7% of the, the nine-year-old girls either either end up getting trafficked or becoming prostitutes. Um, and I remember reading that statistic and thinking, holy shit, like, the odds are crazy. Yeah. You know, the odds are insane. I would love to have my own family. I would love to have my own family. Of course, I worry about the fact that, you know, it might hit, slow me down considerably. Yeah. Um, but I would also really love to... Have more than just my own family. I would like to be able to have other people help other people have families. And not even just that, but like, even if those kids aren't adopted, I'd like to just be able to help kids that could be potential future me's. Because I think about it and I think, look, I've come so far now. I have films that are doing really well. I'm mm-hmm. making an impact on people's lives. I'm now in talks with other filmmakers who've like have really impressive careers, and it's only gonna go up from here. Mm-hmm. But none of this would have happened if my parents hadn't taken a chance on me and decided to adopt me. Yeah. But how do you create those opportunities for people? You know? And it's a bit loaded. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean... I mean, sometimes, you, you know, you, you, look, you, could look at a, you could look at a question so much, all it gives you is a sense of how hard it is to answer. I mean, for me... For me, I think I look at you and I kind of see the, not the beauty, but the, it takes skill because your experiences are so vast. They're so thick, if that makes sense. They're so, it's like porridge. But filmmaking is a filtration process. You think of movies that want to say something big, but they give it to indigestible bites. Like I was joking with a friend of mine the other day. uh, I, I don't even know if I should say this. But I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and I said, uh, Greta Gerwig's greatest uh, success is that she peddled 2010 feminism in a 2023 movie and got everybody to be happy about it. Because the hardcore feminists are like, man, that's a 2010 feminist. We passed that years ago, but it's just digestible enough that somebody who has no introduction to feminism at all can come in. But it creates debate, creates conversation. Biggest movie of the summer.
0: Barbie. (laughs)
1: With that as a sub-theme, to me, art is the only thing that can do that. Yeah. Because to this day, look, I love James Bond movies, but I can still see when they're cash grabs. I see oh, yeah. the product placement all over it. You I know? can't
0: stand Bond movie, James Bond <laughs> movies anymore. <laughs> I look at them and I'm like, man, this female character is so damn one-dimensional. I mean, sometimes, like, if I'm really in the mood for something that's so one-dimensional, like, presents their char- female characters as yeah. so one-dimensional, like, fine, whatever. Like, I don't yeah. have a problem. I, I mean, I think from this conversation, you'll understand that I – I'm very flexible in, like, my beliefs. Like, mm-hmm. I don't try and villainize anybody. Like, mm-hmm. I think, you know, even... I, you know, I have been through so much physical and even, like, sexual violence growing up in Pakistan, and I don't like to villainize anybody because I think that people are a byproduct of their circumstances. And I know we briefly chatted about this um, during our pre-interview, but, like, I, you know, I think that, like... When you're living inside like a community, mm-hmm. um, it can all almo- that is so like sheltered from the outside world, mm-hmm. which is what it was like when I was growing up because there was like no internet mm-hmm. practically, mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just in its infancy stages in like the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. I think that is very much like Plato's allegory of the cave, where it's like all you know is like what you're in mm-hmm. at that moment, mm-hmm. and it's, it isn't until you leave that you realize, oh well, this is wrong, and mm-hmm. like you know that is wrong, and and you know you can't say um, things like this to people anymore. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that. You know, in, in the West, specifically mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. North America, mm-hmm. people are just so quick to jump to conclusions about whether they think someone is good or bad. And mm-hmm. they don't really assess the middle gray area in between.
1: Well, it's because, but only artists do that. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. That's why I'm saying that where you sit is this interesting space because, so for example, sexual identity is, sexual identity is usually the beginning of the greatest revolution of any society. Which is why what's happening now globally is so important because it's the biggest revolution of sexual identity I think in, in modern history. But that's why that's why everybody on all sides are, are fighting. Everybody's oh, yeah. losing their minds. because
0: there's no nuanced conversation. That's I think that's a problem. I think that it's either you're good or you're bad. You beli- correct. You believe this or you don't believe this. And I think that life is not that simple. You know, life isn't like a yes or no or black or white. I think that life is. It all isn't, about but the- they
1: teach it to you that simply. Exactly. Right. So, like, if you think about it, you have to earn the right to learn nuance. When they're teaching you as a child, they give you black and white. It's when you get older that you realize that there's more. Because if you give a child too many options, I think they think themselves into a pretzel. Yeah. And that's what you have to balance as an artist. That's that. So, I mean, these are massive themes. If I was to ask you, what is one theme that you think will be true of all your work forever and ever for all time, what would it be?
0: Oh my God, that's such a loaded question. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> Ooh, a theme. Um, I think that I really value the human experience, Mm -hmm. Uh, in a lot of my work, I want, Mm -hmm. you know, like I mentioned before, I I want my films to be able to impact human beings and not be didactic. So not be like, well, this is right. And Mm -hmm. this is wrong. Mm -hmm. I like to approach things kind of from like that middle ground Mm -hmm. from a nuanced point of view where I let my audience come to their own conclusions. Mm Um, and those are the types of films that I like to sign on to. I don't like things that are preachy. I think that people should come to their own conclusions when after watching a film. And um for the most part, you know, any type of work that I do, I think that it should lead other people to develop like I wouldn't say like it sounds so pretentious to say like a higher level of consciousness, to just but just just kind of like to move outside of this binary of like, well, things can either be like this or Mm -hmm. they can either be like that. Mm -hmm. And I say this because I think that in the West, in North America, people are so sheltered. Mm. They have absolutely no idea what the life is like around them. And when I first came over here and I remember people in Canada talking about the issues that they had, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is what you're worried about? Mm -hmm. You're Mm -hmm. worried about like something as banal as this? Like, because, you know, for me, like at one point there was like an earthquake in Pakistan and I was 15 years old and I think something like 300,000 people died in that yeah. earthquake and there was a huge call, right, to go and, you know, help people at the hospitals and I remember being pushed into an ER room at 15, like helping the doctor cut off like a six-year-old girl's leg. Okay, that is my childhood, right? Whereas yeah. someone over here is like, oh my gosh, you know, um, I don't know, I can't even think, like my yeah. car, Fender Bender or my so-and-so isn't talking to me. Yeah. Right? And, I, and, and I have to remind myself constantly that, you know they're living in their own little cave, right? And these experiences probably are just as impactful for them emotionally, maybe mm-hmm. as mine are to me or mm-hmm. were to me. Mm-hmm. And that trauma is not something that is a collective experience; it's an it's an individual experience, mm-hmm. uh, and each individual experience will, will experience it differently. You could t- and I remember speaking to I speak to a lot of psychologists and therapists. I'm so interested in this, and I, I remember just speaking to someone, and she said, "Look, Shazie." you know, you can have a mother Mm -hmm. that has just like lost her child, like her child has died, Mm -hmm, or a child who's just lost their favorite toy. And depending on who the mother is and who that child is, the child could very well be feeling more pain and hurt than the mother. And I was like, oh shit, like this is how I need to look at things. Um, But I also think that, you know, coming back to what I was saying originally, that the West is just so sheltered. Sometimes I feel like just dropping a bunch of people, like yeah. in a third world country, if yeah. I may say so, cause I know that's not politically correct <laughs> anymore into a developing, developing country and being like, this is what the world is like, like yeah. you have, things are good. Like I, I feel like there's a lot of victimization that happens here. People are kind of, although like, I think it's, it, it's good that we should be conscious that, you know, things have traumatized us or that, you know, our life has been difficult. Like there's no beauty to be found in feeling like a victim, like right. an, As much as people sometimes like to paint me as one, absolutely not. I think that all of my life experiences have made me into a a very well-rounded and strong person. And the reason I'm able to do what I am today and the reason I tell the stories that I like to tell today are because of those experiences. I don't want to wallow around in misery and be like, oh, look at what happened to me. Like, please give me opportunities. You know, I I, I won't do that.
1: I think an interesting thought I once heard. Trauma in an individual, people find heroic. Trauma in a culture, people find inconvenient. So a lot of ways that people look at the darkness of our societies through our heroes, right? Batman is made an orphan. That's easy to digest. Look who who he becomes, he's Batman. Our society creates an opportunity for millions of people every year to become orphans. Nobody would watch that movie. even if you think of like sexual violence, I could think of so many. Like I was, I remember watching The Watchmen. There, there are characters in, in that film that are that are literal victims of sexual violence. It's and it, it, it stayed on an exuberantly long period of time. Um, uh, Carrie Mulligan was in a movie a couple of years ago. Um, n- nonetheless, through individual spectrums, people try and take massive conclusions, and I think that when I think of you know when I think of cultural placements. It has been because these presentations in art, because people are, you know, like they want to soft pedal. I don't disagree with you. The softness of the West, so I think, has manifested itself in a way where people want to see massive truths through individuals because they'll, they'll chew it, they'll chew on it better. Absolutely. So when I come to you and I and I ask that question, I mean, and, and this is probably too specific, but is it every character? or a character in every one of your films being an orphan? Or is it a character in every one of your films being, whether it be the victim or aware of sexual violence? Or is it in all of your films, a character coming to a form of liberal identity in conservative climates? Or is it, do you know what I mean? When we talk about all these themes, the world has to become unnumb. To some of these categories, and then through that, digest the content. Other than that, they're too uncomfortable, in my honest opinion. I've seen it happen over and over again. People like their Buckley's with a side of gummy bears. So when I think about the theme, is it giving a a more realistic perspective of the immigrant's journey? Because, you know, look, if if they sell you a dream and they, if they sell you a dream and instead they give you hard work, I'm not, I'm going to sound like a conservative from Texas. I'm not saying hard work's a bad thing, but tell me that that's what it is. Prepare me. Let me understand. Let me, let me, let me make an honest assessment. Let me decide if I'm coming with my family, if I'm not. If, so what is, if we were, if we, if somebody was watching this and they thought, you know, the biggest thing I take away from this is when I'm looking at a, a Chevy production, I'm definitely going to be getting this
0: I mean I'd love that I'd love people to walk away or at least you know I'm not giving myself enough credit I have to say that when I pick films yeah. and I think I've just within the last year I maybe this is not that much but I think I've received something like 15 to 16 submissions
1: I haven't gotten for, any so that's <laughs> <a lot. laughs>
0: for people uh wanting me to produce their films and a lot of the time it's just there are certain genres I won't touch because I just feel like you know like comedy for example that's not my thing. I, okay. I can appreciate that other people like that, but I just don't think that I can impact people as much with a comedy than I could with a drama, yep. right? Or a coming of age story. Yep. I don't even mind like genre, like yep. give me a little bit of like, you know, a thriller m- mystery, yep. maybe not thriller, but like weave it into a drama, right? And, and dramas are just so much more akin to like, our real life experiences. Mm. Like how often are we going running into ghosts? Like it just do not happen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but whatever it is that I sign on to, like I like them to explore like these different themes of what it means like to be human and okay. like how to confront certain challenges that we face. Mm. And I really liked what you said about, you know, um, tackling, like, these larger-than-life, like, community problems, Mm -hmm. right? Or, like, even just outside of communities, it could be, like, a global issue, Mm -hmm. right? Of, like, identity, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's such a universal experience. But you always have to do it through, like, the one character or, like, the few characters because you can't relate to, like, a group. You Mm -hmm. can relate to an individual. So most stories, at least, that I find are successful, they will always follow, like, you know, the protagonist's Mm -hmm. journey. And you'll kind of learn a little bit about, like, the culture outside of, like, through the experiences that that character has. And... um, you know, in terms of, like, a Chessie film. Yeah. (laughs) I think that if you had to, like, really try and, you know, condense it into some sort of, like, a palpable um, definition, I would say I'm definitely geared more towards festival films. Mm -hmm. Um, Film festivals always allow room for experimentation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that, you know, when I look back 50 years from now or even 20 years from now, Mm -hmm. like, the directors that... Are still being spoken about today, and like the producers who championed them, are not people who made like big blockbusters mm. uh, or like you know the next Netflix TV show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's people who made films that changed the trajectory of the way that we see future filmmaking or that introduce, like, new ideas Mm -hmm. uh, that weren't being explored before. So I'm always trying to look for something different and unique, like a fresh voice, because I think that it's so easy to watch other people's movies and be like, okay, well, I'm going to make a film like this. Mm -hmm. But what's not easy is coming up with an entirely new way of making a film, and I'll give you an example of a film that I watched recently. Mm -hmm. Um, called um, Return to Seoul by Davy Shu, who is a Cambodian and a French uh, director. Mm-hmm. And the film was about a young girl who is not an actor, by the way. She was a non-actor. The whole thing was set in South Korea. It's about a young woman who goes in search of her birth parents because she was adopted. Mm-hmm. And I kid you, first of all, the, the structure of that film was just, you know, wildly different to like the traditional, like I would say, you know, one plot point after the next, after mm-hmm. the next, which leads mm-hmm. to... It, not that it didn't still have like a beginning, middle and an end and a three act structure, but it was just so different. I got time to just sit with a character rather than constantly having like one plot point lead into the next. And it explored a lot of like what I struggled with growing up, which was this self-destructiveness where you feel like, you know, you've been abandoned, nobody loves you. Mm. Um, You know, what is the purpose of you on in your life? Does your mother think about you on like your birthday? And I remember, I mean, I'm not a very emotional person, but I, I have, think about that film every single day. I bawled while I watched the movie. And I think like those are the types of films that I want to make. Films that I can really um, connect uh, to people with. Because like, ultimately, what, what do humans want? Like we want to connect with others. Mm. We want to be able to, we're not islands. Like mm. no human is, humans can't just like live on their own inside a little bubble. Like mm. why do we watch movies so that we can like connect to certain themes mm-hmm. and, and connect to like, you know, the life experiences of a character that we see on screen. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's kind of what I'm looking for.
1: Ten years from now, what's? Pick one of three scenarios, and then we'll 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 come to the end. I'm just. Ten years from now, what's most likely that Shazzy's still making films, that Shazzy's running for some sort of public office, or that Shazzy has found her birth parents.
0: Ooh. Uh I hope all three. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: You gotta pick one. Most likely.
0: Most likely, I feel like making films. Yeah. Yeah. I'll probably still be making films just because the circumstances of finding out who my birth parents are, as much as I would still like to do that, is next to impossible because there were no records. My birth certificate was forged. It was like very much like a hush-hush type of a transaction. Yeah. I don't even know when my birth date is really. I just guess like it's that day. Um... Oh. And then public office, man, like I've been in politics, like I, like not me personally, but like my whole family has been in
1: politics. Yeah, it's your I, calling.
0: I hate it. That's
1: what they say. I hate it. Sounds like a, that sounds like a campaign ad oh, to me.
0: it's so awful because like you're put in these positions where, you know, a lot of the times, uh, I'm not going to mention who and no. the specific circumstances, but there was a member of my family, distant family, who I think worked for... A faction of the government and I'm not even going to name it because they're known to be like one of the most brutal parts of our government. And I think he knew something that he wasn't supposed to know. And a couple of days later, they found him hung. Um, So I think that, you know, because he would, he refused to go the corrupt route. Okay. Right, so their position. I think that in any government, people are stupid if they think that that doesn't happen here. Do you think honestly that governments in the West aren't corrupt? It's just not like as widely known as it
1: is. In, probably, the probably a country. little less murder.
0: Maybe a little less murder, but I'm but pretty sure there's, sure there's like so much else that's going on that we don't know about. And the idea of being in an environment where you have to pretend mm-hmm. um, and put on a facade is just so like revolting to me.
1: Well, that's that's the that's the art of politics. The job of politics is to give a voice to the, to the voiceless.
0: So my take is that what's more powerful than politics media who really influences yeah. people and politicians and yeah. the way that laws are made. Like look Ruper- at what happened after BLM.
1: You sound like Rupert Murdoch.
0: <laughs> Everybody changed. Everybody changed after BLM. Yep. Like the whole world shifted yep. or like, you know, after just ultimately governments are going to sway for the most part unless you're in a dictatorship based on what their people want. And what people want is usually dictated by what they see in the media, Yeah. right? And if you control the media, you control the world, Yeah. right? I'm not talking about, I want to be in journalism. I think that a lot of it has to do with that. But I think that like the more nuanced way to change people's opinions and to bring them to, let's say, you know, communities that they might not understand Mm -hmm. because a lot of like, let's say like racism and stereotyping, like, it comes out of a place of ignorance. It comes from not being close to certain communities that you, you know, have never met before. Yeah. I think that you're, if you're able to tackle those things, it's not going to be instant. Yeah. My politics is more instant. It'll probably take like decades. Yeah. But If you're able to do that, that is such a, not just a sustainable, but also like a more honest and authentic way of like slowly shaping minds in yeah. the future in a way that to me feels like I don't have to go and like, you know, be part of like, the same cycle of yeah. horrific politics that my parents and like my my uncles and my aunts were in.
1: Yeah. What do you have coming up next? Anything you want to plug?
0: What do I have coming up next? Well, I'm shooting my next feature in January. There we go. I'm wrapping up Vincenzo's short film right now, which okay. I'm super excited about. And then I have a Pakistani UK director who I'm talking to right now but working with her on her next feature which is going to be entirely set in Pakistan so that's a challenge that I'm going to have to figure out how to navigate financially
1: okay yeah so still working seven days a week it sounds like
0: I mean (laughs) not as much I would say I'm probably working more normal human hours like 40 40 hours a week but you know it's it's wonderful when you're not going into an office like the one thing I will say is wonderful that that is wonderful is that I can just get up and go cook myself a meal, come back, like work a little bit, like move away, watch a movie in the evening and then go on my computer at midnight if I want to. And I think that my brain, just because of how used to like chaos it's been like growing up, I think that that's the way my brain works best. And I have to say like the nine to five life is like, oh, it's just, it's a, it's the death of creativity in some ways because in order to be creative, you need moments of being idle.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and if you can't be idle, you can't think of new things because you're just going from one thing to the next to the yeah. next.
1: I always end these with a with a questionnaire that I stole from Bernard Pivot, which I essentially stole from inside the Actress Studio, if you'll indulge me. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your favorite word?
0: Oh my God, my favorite word? Yeah. I think someone, okay, I don't know who wrote this. Yep. But I have a little... I have it scrawled on a little picture frame in my office. It's no rain, no flowers.
1: No rain, no flowers. All right. I like that. What is your least favorite word?
0: Ugh. Um, moist. Moist. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, <laughs> that's actually not my least favorite word.
1: <laughs> it's up there today for some uh, reason. I,
0: I mean, I can say this because I'm Pakistani, but paki.
1: Right up there with it. Understand why. What noise or sound do you love?
0: Noise or sound? Do I love? Ooh. Um, huge fan of just being in nature yep. with no devices yep. and just like listening to like the wind or like the trees less rustling, like no city sounds.
1: You describe that. I think of the first Maze Runner book where they were in the glades, and I just think of sort of the grazing sound of whispering trees and cricket, and yeah, wildlife, it's like grass. So I, I definitely feel that. What noise or sound do you hate?
0: technology i hate my phone going off constantly i hate like loud traffic noises just things that are not essentially like very human like we humans weren't born in those environments we created them i think they do us a huge disservice
1: um what profession other than your own would you love to try
0: Ooh, what would i like to try other than my own probably something still within the arts okay um Maybe even something like, I don't know, directing, acting. Yep. Not quite the same, or like writing. I mean, although I kind of already write.
1: So it all comes together, but it's interesting. You're still, you're, okay, so what profession would you absolutely not want to try? Politician. <laughs> uh <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. <laughs> Good old classic. And finally, if heaven exists, what would you want God to say when you pass through the pearly gates?
0: If, if I had,
1: if heaven exists, if
0: heaven exists,
1: what would you want God to say to you when you pass through the pearly gates? You did good. You did good. And with that, hope is that we did good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Share,
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So is there any way that people can keep in contact with you, get in touch with you, any websites that they can follow?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Instagram where I'm pretty active. And my username is at Shezzy M, S-H-E-Z-Z-Y-M. And my website where you can keep track of all my work is markhorpictures.com That's M-A-R-K-H-O-R and then pictures.com.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you. This has been another episode of Unlinear. My name is Travell Simpson. Please check Spoke Network for all your podcast needs and we'll see you next time.